second place I'd like for you to look at is 2 Corinthians 6.14. says, be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath Christ with righteousness? One of the reasons that we're put on this earth, and we all know this, is not only to glorify God, but to, to be a living witness for him to other people, and certainly unbelievers. So there are a lot of things that we do with people who are not believers, hoping to win them to Christ. That's prayer, that's our goal, that's what we do. But this passage says we need to remember in the midst of all of that, that we are not to partake of their evil ways in order to win them. It's amazing because there's a lot of Christianity that's literally doing this. They say you become what they are so you can win them to Christ. But this says there is a dividing line that Christ is exalted, and we will not cross that line. Anything that is detrimental to the gospel must not be of this church, or we cannot win them. There's one more. It's in uh, also in 2 Corinthians, um, the 13th chapter, 14th verse. And by the way, thinking about um, the communion service itself, and I'm not trying to get into open and closed communion and all those things that will be discussed here this morning, but I think there is a place when we commune with the Lord, it needs to be with believers. When we, when we remember the sacrifice by the shed blood and the broken body, that is strictly for believers. There are a lot of things that we participate in. We encourage others to participate with us. This isn't one of them. In fact, there is a passage, and you know it full well, it says that they, we don't want them to eat and drink damnation to themselves. And so it's very important, I think, that when we commune, it must be with those who have been converted and are fully born again unto Jesus Christ. So this uh, 14th verse of the 13th chapter of 2 Corinthians, it is called a benediction. It is the last verse in this, uh, in the second Corinthians. And it says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. This verse is uh, interesting because, first of all, it, it speaks of the Trinity. If you'll notice, the grace of the Lord and the love of God, which I take to be the Father, and the communion of the Holy Ghost. So what, what is it have a common union together with each other and with the Lord. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit. It is Him working in our lives. And so I think there's a foundational uh, teaching that's here that we all know. This meeting and every meeting and all of our lives and everything we do, we need the Holy Spirit in the middle of it. In fact, we need to be totally yielded to Him. So our prayer today is that as we gather, that the Holy Spirit would be with us. We would feel that love of God that He sends in His Son.
we would understand the grace of God is extended to all of us or else we wouldn't be saved. I know a lot of times we don't. I'm just going to ask you, maybe someone has an urgent prayer request.
want this down. It's flat. You, it's flat. You want it down a little bit? Good morning. It's a blessing to be here this morning, and I trust for each of you, you are feeling the blessings of the Lord. It's been quite a year for most of us. For some of us, it's been a quite, quite a last couple of years. <clears throat> Sorry about my voice this morning. I hope it's more of a distraction to me uh, than it is to you. I want to take a text from the 50th Psalm. I've noticed over the years, and kind of looked it up recently, it seems like a lot of our preaching, and I'm not faulting this, but a lot of our preaching is about various doctrines. Quite frequently, it's about family. Some of the pressing issues that we deal with on a daily basis as believers. But I want to go back to something that is so fundamental this morning as we look into the Word together. So fundamental that it's the subject of our activity in heaven. And I don't see a lot of preaching on it. We, we do mention it, I guess, from time to time. But I just want to look at praising God. The 50th Psalm says, The mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God hath shined. Our God shall overcome and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens above and to the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made covenant with me, 
by sacrifice. And the heavens shall declare his righteousness, for God is judge himself. Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against thee. I am God, even thy God. I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or thy burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thy house, nor he goats out of thy folds. For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. And if I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer unto God thanksgiving and pay thy vows unto the Most High. And call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. But unto the wicked God saith, What hast thou to do to declare my statutes, or that thou shouldest take my covenant in thy mouth? Seeing thou hatest instruction, and casteth my words behind thee. When thou sawest a thief, then thou consentest with him, and hast been partaker with adulterers. Thou givest thy mouth to evil, and thy tongue Frameth deceit. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother, thou slanderest thine own mother's son. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself, but I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces, and there be none to deliver. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. And to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I shew the salvation of God. I'm going to approach this from a perspective this morning of fallen man in order to try to illustrate the points that I'm trying to make. We've all been witness to the scenario of a pre-toddler who crawls up to an older child's pile of toys, selects one for himself and proceeds to jam it into his mouth scanning the toy pile for another even more desirable victim of his slobbery attentions. The older child takes note and, no doubt needing the object for some urgent project of utmost importance, demands that the toy be returned to its rightful owner. But no amount of caterwauling can persuade the diapered thief to return the property. Attempts at grabbing result in screams of outrage that draw, threaten to draw attention, the unwanted attention of a parent who disapproves of grabbing. Syrupy, cooing pleas result only in impassive stares while drool drips. Demands are made to no effect. Reason is offered and refused. Tears move the thief, not one whit. Finally, pushed to desperation, the beleaguered owner of the kidnapped plaything hits upon a potential solution and begins a bargaining process with substitute treasures, and only when he hits upon an object of lesser value to himself and greater value to the toothless perpetrator can the purloined be ransomed and both parties satisfied. Thus we learn at an early age that value is as value does. And so the bartering economy is born in our hearts, and as we grow up, our parents reinforce by rewarding desirably desirable behavior and punishing bad behavior and the lessons we learned at the hand of a slobbering sibling are reinforced. To say that this informs our Christian worldview and colors our relationship with our Creator might seem like a stretch, but really is it? 
In this psalm, God has a lot to say. The psalm that we read, the 50th psalm. And he talks about himself being the judge and that he does not need sacrifices and it requires a thankful heart that he sees and punishes wickedness. And the last verse talks about the salvation of God. And from a Christian perspective, we understand what he's talking about because we have the whole of Scripture from the Genesis to the Revelation to help us to understand. And those of us who have studied Scripture for many years and heard many uh, Sunday school lessons and many sermons understand these things, and yet we still have to overcome a certain perspective, that bartering perspective that we learn at an early age. In Psalm 56, the psalmist David starts out with complaints against his enemies, and then he confesses trust in God, and he petitions God's retribution on his enemies, and he expresses confidence that God has his back. And then he recognizes his obligation to be thankful for that. He observes that God preserved him, finally, so that he could, quote, walk before God. In the last part of this 50th Psalm, we read in the 21st first, or the 23rd verse, rather, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I shew the salvation of God. Throughout the Old and the New Testaments, we read things similar to this, that God, in exchange for something, gives us something. And I believe that at some point in time, for most of us, an uncomfortable thought or feeling begins to arise in our hearts, engendered from the practice of those formative years of bartering for objects of our desires, is this quid pro quo. Does God demand something of us so that he can get something from us? And do we demand things of God or offer things to God so that we can get from him what we want? Bartering something of value to man for something of value to God. And then we begin to see in passages like this something similar. Revelations 3, 5, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but will confess his name before my father and before his angels. John 14, 15, if thou love me, Jesus said, keep my commandments. And I will pray the father. And he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. In that third chapter of the revelation, again, we have to him that overcometh. Will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. You see a pattern? It seems like there's a lot of carrot and stick warnings or encouragements made to all the seven churches in the Revelation. In fact, throughout the Bible, we find God giving commandments regarding behavior, don't we? And warning of retribution for failure to do his will. And our bartering experience can almost involuntarily bubble to the surface again and bring the thought that God is bargaining to produce the kind of behavior that he wants, that he values, that will gratify him and threaten retribution if he doesn't get his way, because that's what we've learned, isn't it? Groups that we want to run around with force us to behave in certain ways in order to gain their approval. And this is the natural perspective on relationships, even those whom we love. We sometimes desire to control their behavior 
and use similar tactics to get it, the reward and the punishment. We do this with our children as they grow up. And what we've done is we've placed a value on certain things, haven't we? We've learned to place value on things. And those things that we want are worth more to us than other things. Think of the mass-produced plastic products in our grocery stores and in our throwaway society today. They have low price and low value and they're easily replaced. And they usually have to be because they're plastic. But high-value items, we value and we preserve and we are willing to pay more for them. And those things that are handmade especially seem to be sought after and we place them in high priority and we seek after them and we desire them and we value them. Our economy, our whole economy today in the United States is built on the lust of the eyes and mass production to, 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 to produce that which satisfies the lust of our eyes. But I want us to think about this from that perspective, that we so easily allow that value proposition to get into the way that we think about our relationship with God. It's so easy for us to, to begin to resent that God withholds his blessings unless we behave in a certain way. And that's the way we often think about it. And, it. and it gets into our relationship with him such that we begin to behave in such a way in order to appease God. We want to do things. We want to say things. We want to behave in such a way that it appeases God and that he will be pleased with us in order to gain that which he has that we desire. And the greater things that God can give us, we place more value on them and we behave in such a way to gain his favor. God's economy, though, is not built on mass production and lust. God's economy is built on something very different. It's built on his love for us. And if we as Christians don't approach our relationship with him from that standpoint, we get off into the weeds pretty quickly. His economy is built on his love and our need for him to provide that which we cannot provide for ourselves, forgiveness and restoration. He produced it, but think about this. He not only produced the possibility of restoration and forgiveness and justification, but he also paid the price for it because we needed it so much that the value is priceless and we cannot pay it. And so he paid for it, we simply receive it. But the problem is that that which is in our hearts, that bartering system that we learned at the hands of our siblings and our parents and our friends and our economy is hard to get out of our head. And we bargain with God, especially in those times when we really need something from him. And it seems like when you go into the Psalms and you, you, you read the Psalms of David, uh, he gives praise to the Lord, but then he ends up with, and because I have praised you, you will give me relief from my enemies, perhaps. You will give me blessings. And that's the way we tend to read those psalms. God, you have done this, and therefore, because you have done this for me, I will do this for you. And because of that, we've gotten off on the wrong foot. 
For David, we might perceive that deliverance from his enemies was exchanged in praise for God or praise to God. In Psalm 50, God promises salvation in that 23rd verse. He says, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me and to him that ordereth his conversation, that is his life. He that lives in a way that blesses me, I will shew the salvation of God. Why else would God command us to praise him? Does he need praise? Does he crave it like the celebrity or the politicians do? Think about this. In the 23rd verse that we read, Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me. In the 15th verse of this chapter, the, the psalmist says, Whoso, and, or rather, and call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver thee, and thou shalt glorify me. Is that quid pro quo? Whoso offereth praise, this isn't the only place we are told to offer praise to God. The Psalms are full of it, full of that command to offer praise to God. And we find biblical believers praising God throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. Do they do so because of what God has done for you? What he has done for them? Is that the way we think of it? Because the problem with that is, of course, when we perceive that God isn't doing something for us, it's a lot harder to praise him, isn't it? We're told also to glorify God. And interestingly, Jesus prayed in John 12 that God would glorify himself. And the Father responded audibly in that case that he would do so and had already done so. How many of us haven't felt revulsion at the sight of a celebrity or a politician who gathers around themselves fawning fans? The celebrity needs to be petted and praised to garner self-worth and the fans admiring some characteristic or achievement and hoping to benefit from the celebrity's status. It's a very parasitic arrangement. Do we have that kind of arrangement with God? You give to me and I'll give to you and we'll both be satisfied. In the story of the prodigal son, you remember that. He goes out and as long as he's got money, he's got friends. But as soon as the money goes, the friends are gone. His bartering tools were depleted. So this is the perspective of fallen man, that God must offer us something of value in exchange for something that God wants or God needs. That is our worship and our praise. So why else then, if that perspective is wrong, why would we say that God commands us to praise him. Does he need our praise? Does he crave it like a celebrity or a politician in order to feel worthy and accepted and love? Why is it that we think this way? Because it is how we feel when we do good. We want praise and recognition and we project that onto God. But God in this 50th Psalm says, if I were hungry, would I ask something of you? I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I own everything. I made it all. If I were hungry, why would I ask you? So there must be some other reason why God commands us to praise him. Judging God to be somehow in need of our offering of praise puts him below us. In that 50th Psalm, 
In the middle of that chapter, he says, I will not reprove thee for thy sacrifices or burnt offerings to have been continually before me. I will take no bullock out of thine house, nor he goats out of thy fold. For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine and the fullness thereof. Will I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? And then he says this, offer unto God thanksgiving. And pay thy vows unto the Most High. How ridiculous is the thought that God, who is so powerful as to be able to create the vast universe in which we find ourselves, somehow needing to subject himself to the approval of barely functioning tiny creatures of his own worth. It's a little bit like us needing the approval of the mold on the dinner that we have left over in order to feel like a chef. Well, at least the mold likes it. Maybe someday the cockroaches will like it even better. That doesn't make sense, does it? The God who created and therefore owns everything cannot possibly need us for anything. So why does God ask us to praise him? If I were hungry, I would not ask thee. No, there's something else to this command to praise and glorify and honor God, and we have the answers to that in Scripture and I believe those of you, again, who have been around a long time and who know the scriptures well and understand at least a little bit the heart of God, understand why he commands us to praise him. But I want to think about this. First, we have the greatest commandment, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. We love him, the scripture says, because he first loved us. Everything, it seems, in our, in our hearts and minds is selfish. We think about God in terms of, even in our salvation, we think about God in terms of what he can do for us. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he forgave us of our sins. We love him because he gave Christ to be the propitiation for our sins on the cross. We love him because he gives us, pour, daily pours out blessings upon us. And we can praise him for these things. But when things don't go so well as 2020 hasn't, it seems like, for many of us, what are we praising God for? What do we have to praise him for? Well, there is that thing of salvation, yes. But what about the temporal blessings that I so desperately need now? What about relief from the persecution the prosecution, the anxiety, or whatever it might be. What do I have to praise God for in the face of these things? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength. And we are commanded to do that not because God needs us to love him. He created us to love him. He created us because he wants that relationship with us. God gave himself for us. And when we see God as who he is, we begin to understand just in the tiniest measure why he has commanded us to love him. We call this commandment, or we call this a commandment, right? This, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength as a commandment. God demands that we love him. That's how we see it. But I think we ought to see it not as a commandment, but as an invitation. It's an opportunity 
Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength is not a command or a demand of God, but rather it is an invitation to do that which is the most incredible thing that any of us could ever conceive in our hearts and minds and won't really fully understand until we have that opportunity to do so in heaven. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, mind, soul, and strength is an invitation. The chef invited the mold to sit down to a delicious meal together. Think of it that way. And he invites the cockroaches too. Throughout scripture, God invites his people to come deeper into their relationship with him, to discover him, to know him, and to experience him. And what we, about, about as deep as most of us ever go is being thankful that he's given us some temporal blessings and maybe understanding to some degree or another that he has forgiven us of our sins and that he provided the way. Why, we can only guess why he has invited us, but apparently has something to do with the very character of God. And this really gets down to the crux of the matter, because as we begin to know God, as he invites us into that relationship with him, as he provides the way for us through Jesus Christ that we're going to celebrate this evening as we sit around the tables together, he is the greatest chef has invited us, the mold, to sit down at a meal together with him in a way that he has provided, which we can't really even fully comprehend or understand or appreciate. He wants to give himself to us. And that, I think, is something that once we comprehend, we begin to understand why he commands us to not only love him, but based upon that love. Him giving himself to us, we begin to understand why he commands us to praise. It's not a command, it's an invitation. Once we begin to understand the character and the love of God and the grace of God that he's extended to us, something begins to click in our hearts and minds. And we go beyond praising God because of what he's done for us. And we begin to understand the very nature and character of God which invites praise because of who God is. He wants to give himself to us. In the Old Testament, he gave himself to his people. He owed them nothing, but he initiated the relationship. He offered himself. He called to Abram, and he gave to Abram the promise of blessing. And it says that it was counted to Abram as faith. It was counted to Abram, and God made his covenant with him. In the New Testament, he offers himself to us in a new and unprecedented way. His instruction to praise, I believe, is about us, not him. He doesn't need our praise. But as we praise him, we begin to see, and it begins to grow in our heart like mold on the food. If you'll excuse that expression, what praise is really all about. I'm amazed sometimes that we're, we come to the house of God and we call it a worship service and it's almost the farthest thing from it. We're not praising God for who he is, we're praising God for what he's done for us. It's a very self-centered and selfish worship service. And sometimes we don't even have the thankfulness in our hearts to actually praise him. We come to worship together and we can't even sing the songs of praise and worship. Our minds are, are, are distracted and they're a hundred miles away. And we're worried about what God hasn't done for us rather than praising him for what he has. 
But as the created creature, we have to realize that we are not God. We do not have his knowledge or wisdom or power. And so to understand him and to know him, we first have to give up ourselves. All of these things in scripture that are talking to us about who we are in our relationship with God and who God is and what God demands of us. We think about it from the, stand, from the selfish standpoint of what we have to give up rather than what we're gaining. And even in thinking of what we're gaining, we still make it about ourselves and not about God. Who is God? So to know him, we first have to give up ourselves, our, our notions, our wills, and our sin. And this is why Jesus said that to follow him, we must take up our cross. And that's what we focus on, isn't it? We focus on the cross. We focus on what we're giving up. We're focusing on, is it really worth it to give up all of these things? And God must really be blessed because, boy, look at all the things that we've given up in order to praise and to honor and to follow him. It's all about us. It's all about the bartering system. It's all about what we're getting in exchange. But when we realize the value of God, think about this. When something catches our fancy or appeals greatly to our sense of appreciation for its intrinsic beauty, we contemplate it with awe and excitement, don't we? We feel an immediate attachment to it, a desire to have it, to keep it so that we can go on enjoying it forever. Maybe it's that beautiful young woman, young men. Maybe for those who are older, it's seeing a scenic vista, of the beauty of the mountains and pick your spot, the Appalachians, the Rockies, wherever it might be, the Alps. And we see that beauty and we want to take a picture in our mind's eye and see it forever. It's just so beautiful. Maybe we even buy a postcard of it or paint a picture of it. We feel an immediate attachment and a desire to have it. And if you ever notice, C.S. Lewis points this out, if you ever read uh, C.S. Lewis, but he points this out, if you ever notice that when we come to appreciate the intrinsic beauty in something, the, the intrinsic value that it has, we don't want to keep it to ourselves. When we see something like that, when we desire something like that, when we value something like that, the first thing we want to do, he says, is share it with others. Look at the beauty. Wow! Look at that! And we want to share it with others. So many times in the Bible, we're told to praise God, and we, are in, we, we see those encouraging others to do the same thing. And that is because we see in the intrinsic beauty the holiness the omnipotence, the omniscience, the graciousness, the love, the, the, the grace of God. When we see the inherent beauty and value, the inestimable, eternal value in God, we see in that and we want to, to not only enjoy it, we want to worship it and we want to share that with other people. Look at this. Can you imagine what, what this is and the value that is here and the beauty that is here? And we begin not only to appreciate it, to enjoy it. That's what God is calling us into. That's what the whole scripture from the Genesis to the Revelation is all about. Is God calling us into that relationship with him for which he has created us and for which, from which we have fallen. And he made a way back into that again so that we might appreciate and enjoy him. The scripture talks about God 
the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit glorifying each other. In, in different passages, you can find where God is glorifying himself. God glorifies the Son. The Son glorifies the Father. The Holy Spirit glorifies Father and Son, and they glorify the Holy Spirit. He's calling us into that relationship with him. What an opportunity. The mold can sit down at a feast with the chef and glorify the chef. And the chef somehow glorifies the mold. How does that happen? That's a beyond the scope of my understanding. You know, we seldom desire to keep a secret. Upon seeing the sweeping panorama of nature's beauty, even if we're alone, have you ever said, wow, out loud, even if nobody's there to hear, wow, that's incredible. When we are with others, we feel compelled to express it, allowed to invite others to appreciate it as we do, to wonder at it, and so it is with God, to discover him, to know him, to experience him in his fullness, and to enjoy him. He calls us into that relationship with him. And the more we know God, the more we understand his wisdom, love, grace, righteousness, faithfulness, truthfulness, judgments, perfection, power, holiness. The more we understand these things, the more we value them and, the more, and he who defines them. And the more we value them, the more we admire them and love them. And the more we admire them, the more we love him. And the more we love him, the more we are compelled to praise him for that. Not because he benefits us, but because of the intrinsic value in his beauty and goodness and praiseworthiness. He is virtue and he is worthy to be praised. So the question is, how many times when we come and sit in, a, in an assembly like this, how many times are our minds a thousand miles away and we're grumpy because things haven't gone right this week or this month or this year and the wife and I got into a spat on the way in and we can't praise, and so-and-so sitting down, down uh, a few rows away from us, uh, you know, their children are a distraction to us, and we have a headache, and on and on and on it goes, and we, we blow the whole thing. We sit in worship services, what, a couple hours a week? A couple hours a week? Out of all of the hundreds of hours a week that God gives to us, we sit in a worship service, and we don't worship God. And why don't we worship God? Because we're not thankful to God. And why are we not thankful? We're not thankful because we don't know who God is. And when we do summon up the courage to praise him, it's because things are going well and our digestion is going well and the kids are behaving this particular day. And we've bartered with God. Thanks, God, you've given me these blessings and so I'll give you back a little bit of praise. When we can praise God out of a sense of wonder and awe and appreciation for his intrinsic beauty and his all-encompassing love and grace and righteousness, faithfulness, and truthfulness, we will not be able to keep this to ourselves. We will be compelled to praise. And I think when we get to that point where we sit down, whether we're by ourselves or we're in a company of believers or in the company of unbelievers, when we really know truly and value the intrinsic worth of who God is and we're not praising him because of what he's done for us, we're finally coming to the point that he has been trying to draw us 
through all of the scriptures, all of the millennial, that he has established his relationship with mankind. We're finally coming to that point. Praise is the fulfillment of our enjoyment and comprehension of God. It is the expression of our awe and wonder and love and glorifying him as he commands us is fully enjoying him as he intended when he created Adam and Eve. And so I just encourage you this morning and at all times to think about that when you come to a time of worship, whether it's in your family, whether it's by yourself uh, at a time of of uh, contemplation of the word of God and your prayer time, whether it's in an assembly of believers like this or whether it's in uh, heaven. How many of you have a picture of what heaven is going to be like? And somehow or another, the limitations of our mind kind of take our thinking about heaven and projecting it, project it onto a, a worship service like this. And we think, well, you know, we enjoy singing and we enjoy the harmony and melody and we even enjoy the words to these songs because they move us. But you know what? I can only sing for about a half an hour and then I'm done with that. And so we can't imagine eternity singing praises to God. But I don't believe that it's going to be quite like that, do you? It's going to be a level of praise that we only barely touch in our best moments of worship here. But God invites us to do that in preparation for a time when, like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we will glorify Him in a way that is unbounded by our ideas of the bartering system, buying value and giving value in return. May God help us to understand what praise and glory is as we attempt to do so in our worship services to him and may we do so fully out of a heart of love and understanding and appreciation for the value of God and not simply for what he has done for us is our prayer this morning may God add his blessings